Lord, amidst all of the turbulence and trials of life, we celebrate today, Jesus, that you are king, that you are on your throne. And Lord, we thank you that the way you came to that throne was not of violence and earthly power, but through your self-giving love and humility. Lord, we ask now that by the work of your Holy Spirit, our hearts would come alive right now to everything in your word that you have to speak, that everything that is heavy upon our backs, upon our minds, upon our hearts would be placed aside so that we could give you our undivided attention, our Lord and our King. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy Christ the King Sunday. It's one of my favorites. It's the last Sunday before Advent. Can you believe that? We are, we are moving closer and closer to Christmas, and it's freaking me out. <laughs> I love Christmas. I saw a political bumper sticker the other day. This is not a political statement about my stance on anything political. But the political bumper, said, political bumper sticker said, Any functioning adult, 2020. Any functioning adult, 2020. And just think about that for a second. That's not a, that's not a political statement. But it made me reminded that we want to be governed by a faithful ruler. Somebody who's functional. Somebody who's not only functional, but somebody who's just and righteous. Somebody who's honorable. Somebody who will ensure that society is governed in a peaceful way. But alas, on this side of the veil, it is very difficult these days to be governed by such a kind of government, isn't it? Whether Republican, Democrat, or anything else. But friends, there's good news because Christianity is the story of a faithful ruler. A king, in fact. A heavenly king. Every Sunday that we begin our liturgy, we did it today just as we do just about every other Sunday until we switch up the opening uh, entrance, we say, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Christianity is about a kingdom. It is about God's kingdom. You see, Israel, the people who were called out by God in the midst of the nations, Before they were a monarchy, they were a theocracy. They were governed by God alone. God was their king, and that was always his intention to be the king of his people. And they went to Saul, and they went to Samuel, and they said, we want a king like all the other nations. And God says, that's going to be bad news for you. You want an earthly ruler? It's going to be bad news. And they said, but, 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 but we want a king, and everybody else has a king. And God said, okay, I'll give you a king. And they got Saul, and then you know the history of the kings of Israel, most of them were corrupt. They did a great injustice, idolatry, led people away from God. They were, most of them, failures. But the plan remained, it stayed in place, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would reign over his people faithfully exercising justice and righteousness as a loyal ruler. We heard uh, a little bit of a glimpse looking forward from Jeremiah's own day this morning. The people of Israel are in exile in Babylon, and God is speaking through Jeremiah, and he said this, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Do you know that the New Testament says Jesus Christ is our righteousness? Because we are clothed in his righteousness. Now, the whole story of salvation, of God's plan to save this world and to redeem it, the defeat of sin and death and the reestablishing of the God of Israel's reign over his creation is about how God establishes his kingdom in and through his Messiah, Jesus. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to look at Colossians and briefly at Luke to see who this kingly Messiah is and what it means for our lives. Start with me in Colossians. We're skipping down just a couple of verses into the reading that you have there. If you are looking at your Bible, we are in uh, verse 13 and 14. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of death or from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Say transferred. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. God shares the rule of his kingdom with his son. In fact, he reigns over his kingdom in and through his son. Now, can anyone argue with the fact that the world as it is right now is a domain of darkness? Do you know Orlando is uh, number three statistically for human trafficking in the United States? Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Orlando, Miami, and the list goes on and on and on. And there are more cities where it's happening than I care to name. It is a domain of darkness and many people apart from Christ are lost in that sea of darkness. And when someone puts their trust in the king, they are transferred by a mighty supernatural act of God out of that domain of darkness into his kingdom, his kingdom of light. Aren't you happy to be a child of the kingdom of light? Even in the midst of darkness, we shine the light of Christ. You see, Jesus' first public sermon The first words out of his mouth were repent, change the way you think and you live for the kingdom of God has come near you. It is in and through the Messiah, his ministry, his life, death and resurrection that the kingdom of God has come upon us. And it's here. It's not here in all of its fullness, but it is here. And the king of that kingdom is Jesus and the kingdom of God is what it is because of who Jesus is. Moving on into Colossians, we read this. Now, just a little historical side note, the, uh, many scholars think that this part move that we're moving into in verse 15 was a hymn of praise used in the early church to glorify Christ and sung or chanted by the peoples of the early church in their liturgies. And he says this, He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. I don't know how you can read that and say the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is divine. He is, the word in Greek is icon, the exact representation of the invisible God. When Peter, or Jesus is talking to his disciples in John chapter 14, Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says to Philip, he says, Philip, I have been with you all this time, even after I've been among you for so long. You do, do you not know that when you see me, you see 
the Father. You see, everything that Jesus did, everything he was, every healing, every deliverance from a demon, every uh, every scolding he made against people who were religious hypocrites, everything he taught about sin, death, salvation, redemption, hell, heaven, all of that, he is perfectly reflecting and imaging who the Father is. He is the exact image of the invisible God in his compassion for sinners, his desire to heal the sick, his indignation towards superficial superficial religion, and his commitment to holiness and righteousness. In all of these things, Jesus is showing us what God's kingdom looks like. He's giving us a glimpse into God's kingdom. And he's showing people that it has invaded the kingdom of darkness in which we, we presently live. It's kind of like a hidden kingdom working its way into the fabric of the domain of darkness until one day when he returns, it will be here in all of its fullness. Now, I just find it fascinating about Jesus, and I think it's worth noting in light of what the wide range of belief that we encounter in our culture, that no other religion makes God personable and knowable like this. You see, Islam's God, he will speak through prophets, but he does not visit humanity himself. A a, a faithful Muslim will tell you, no, God is a master and we are his slaves. He does not come down in the form of a humble human being. No way, no how. Hinduism has over 330 million small g gods, I'm not exaggerating, who are supposedly manifestations of the one God. But none of them are real historical people who walked the earth and died for the sins of the world so that you could know him in a personal way. Buddhism doesn't really believe in a personal God, so you just follow principles and you hopefully get reincarnated into a better life on and on and on and on for all of eternity. I always wondered what it would be like to be a piece of broccoli or something, but I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But you see, only in Jesus can you actually relate to God in a personal way. It's what makes him unique. You see, young people today are becoming so fascinated with the world of new age spirituality. I see it all around and they're, they're, they're grasping for something and they're saying, oh, thoughts, prayers, intentions, meditation, and they're using all these words and it's very vague. It's just very cloudy spirituality because there's a hunger, there's a spiritual desire there to be connected to something above us, transcendent. But you see, there's something also in the human heart that, that, that shirks at the idea of a personal God. Because why? Because then my life will be accountable to him. And he might actually have something to say about the way I live. So that's why we see people grasping for spirituality, but not for God, right? Because the human heart is, is torn. It's, a, it's afflicted by sin and it's, and it's opposed to God. But you see, in Jesus, you can be with God. You can speak with God on a person-to-person basis. That's incredible with the creator of stars. In galaxies, you can speak to him. You can know his love and his his favor. It's promised to you, his blessing, his protection, all of those things. Now, moving a little bit deeper into the passage in verse 16, Paul says this about Jesus. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You know, we often think about Jesus as just a a man who walked the earth and who who taught some uh, principles about how to treat your neighbor and things like that. And he did that. But we don't often think about him as he is portrayed in this passage as the uncreated, eternal, majestic, holy, full of splendor, creator of the world. 
of the cosmos. It's an incredible picture. It's a cosmic view of who Jesus is in the heavenly places. You see, he says visible or invisible, whether you can see it or not, or it's a part of the unseen realm, Jesus created it including fallen spiritual beings that we talked about in our class on spiritual warfare this morning. They were created through him and for his glory. Everything in all of creation was created for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Every breath that we take is meant for the glory of God. And the more we live into that, the more happy we'll be, by the way, just a side point. You see, this is why, this is who Jesus is. This is why he can command our allegiance. It's why he can say, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's why Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be a day when every demon, every wicked person that has ever committed an atrocity and rebelled against God for all their life will bend their knee, whether they want to or not, to the name of Jesus. If he walked in this room right now, you know what we'd all be doing? We would, in all of his glory, we would be hitting the ground face down because he is a glorious, glorious king. Now, when we talk about the Son of God, um, we're talking about, we're not talking, we're talking about this side of who Jesus is, right? He's divine and he's human, but we're talking about his divine side here, right? He's the eternal Son of God. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was at the dawn of creation, bringing everything to be. This is why C.S. Lewis can say things like this. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. If Jesus is who the scriptures say he is, you cannot take Christianity lightly as some principles to live by or as one of many options for from a religious smorgasbord. If he is the Lord and God of all creation, then we must live lives of allegiance to him, obedience to him, love for him. Now, moving on, verse 17, Paul says he is the head of the body, the church. He is our head. He is our head. This is a question that every church must seriously wrestle with. Is King Jesus truly our head? Is he the one in charge of everything we do? Or is it power-hungry people in the congregation? Or is it the people who just give the most money? Right? Is it the... Is it... Is it... Um, is it the people who uh, have the most say in what color the paint is or how the candles look? Or is Jesus really king of this church, of everything that we do? And blessed will be the church where Jesus is king. Amen? <clears throat> you see, when we gather for worship, here's another question. Do we realize that we're in the presence of this heavenly king? Do, do we realize whose presence we are actually entering? You know, if you, if you, if you like don't even pick up the hymnal and worship or you're kind of looking at Facebook, what does that say about what you believe about whose presence you're entering into? Now, <laughs> I've heard, uh, through the grapevine, of course, because that's always how it works, that some people have said, oh, Father Cameron's sermons are kind of long these days. You know, no one has a problem when UCF goes into overtime and the game lasts three or four hours. They'll be tuned in. But if worship to the king of heaven and the earth goes 15 minutes longer and we're not going to get seated at Bob Evans fast as we want to, we complain and moan about it. 
That is sad, friends. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to say everything I believe that God has given me to say every single Sunday morning, even if it takes 15 minutes longer than it normally does. If you want a 12-minute homily, there's plenty of other Episcopal parishes that will give you 12-minute homilies. I, 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 and they're okay. But I have to be obedient to, to what the Lord is saying, you see, because even in everything, in the way that we worship, in the way that we process what we hear from the pulpit or from the lectern or, or the, the scriptures that are read, is Jesus king, Right? Or are we just here to just kind of listen to some words and hopefully take away like a helpful principle? But if it goes long, shame on the preacher. Silly. It's silly, really, if you think about it. Um, Paul goes on. We're almost done in Colossians. He says this in verses 19 and 20. We're skipping ahead a little bit. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, so he's like, if I didn't make the point about that, he's divine already. Let me say it again. In him, all the fullness, not part of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay. I want you, when the Jehovah's Witnesses, to come to the door, be loving to them, and take them to Colossians chapter 1 and read verses 15 through 20 and say, what do you guys do with this? What do you do with this? You don't believe that Jesus is divine. What do you do with this? Um, now, he, he achieved reconciliation, is what Paul goes on to say. He says this, through him... To reconcile to himself all things. How does he do it? Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, the whole creation, when when Adam and Eve fell into disobedience and, and, and spiritual evil was let into the world, the whole creation came under God's judgment. He speaks to Adam, to Eve, and to the serpent, and they are given curses because of what they did. Because God, when God withdraws his presence, the place is no longer blessed because then he had to withdraw his presence because of sin. And so things in the world, including all of humanity, is in its natural state unreconciled to God. But the good news is this. God doesn't leave us that way. He sends his son to bear our sin so that we can be reconciled. That's how he makes peace with all things. And not only is he reconciling humanity, friends, in the end, when he returns, he's going to reconcile the whole creation that's been infected by sin. Because by his blood applied to all of the cosmos, and this is kind of a mystical and spiritual sounding concept, but it's true, by his precious blood shed on the cross applied to all of the cosmos, everything will be restored to how it was supposed to be so that heaven and earth can overlap again and we can be with him in all, for all of eternity. Now, surely you would think somebody who is, whose image is painted in such glorious and exalted language and terminology in a passage like this, surely you would say he pummeled and punched and stabbed and lied and cheated his way to the top, right? Because that's how people get power. Do you know how he got to the top where he is? Luke tells us in our gospel reading today. Look at that reading, just the very beginning of it. This is how Jesus, this is how Israel's God becomes king of his people. It's how he ascends his throne. Verse 33, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. That is the earthly throne of the heavenly king. He does not do it by stomping out his enemies with military might. He does it by laying down his life. He says no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's us, his friends. He lays down his life. The God who made all things decided to become humble, 
to set aside his divine attributes, to walk the earth as a human being, to empty himself and to become obedient as a slave to death so that we would not have to bear the punishment for our sins, which is death, so that we would have the hope of eternal life. It's really quite amazing and humbling if you think about it that our God would do that. He did not have to. He's God. But you see, the humility and the mercy of King Jesus are most on display at the place they called the skull, the cross of Calvary. And you see it, and you should read the rest of the passage and meditate it on the way uh, later this week. The mercy continues to flow out. He's being pinned up beside two criminals who are deserving of what they get, and he's not, and he's getting pinned up beside them. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Those are words that Jesus has spoken over all of our lives. You realize that? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And in that is our salvation. That is good news. You see, on earth, his throne is a bloody cross. And this is the beautiful picture that we get from Colossians and Luke and holding them up side by side. On earth, his throne is a bloody cross. But what it leads to in the heavenly realms is his vindication over all of heaven and earth and the reclaiming of the authority that Satan tried to offer him through other means. And that's why he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He's king, friends. He is king of all. And that should give us hope because one of us is up there on a throne, a human being reigning over all things. And he's good and he's faithful. Now, what's it mean for us? What does it mean for us? I just have just a few things. Number one, it means that we share in his royal rule. Christian, you do not realize who you are as a child of God, as a son or daughter of God. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this. It tells us about the spiritual reality that we're participating in when we become adopted sons and daughters of God that we don't see with our eyes. And this is, this is what Paul says. Listen to this. He says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Okay, you've heard that before. Then he goes on and he says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are seated with him in the heavenly places. That's who you are in the spiritual realm at his feast table as a welcome friend, son, daughter, That's amazing. When God looks at someone who is in Christ, who has given their lives to Christ, he sees one of his children, his royalty. Oh, believers, that we would believe that and live with the confidence to approach him as such and to wield his authority and his power in our lives for the sake of his kingdom. Satan loves when Christians don't realize the authority that they have. I was talking to somebody the other day um, who has had a lot of experience with uh, dealing with Satanism and people who are Satanists. And he says, Satanists will tell you, he's like, they, they think it's hilarious because they're like, Christians don't understand the power of the blood of Jesus that they have, that they can speak in his name and by his blood and that evil things have to depart. You see, we don't. We don't realize the power and the authority that Jesus has given us access to, to help reign in his kingdom. Uh, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, one of my favorites, um, he, he, he's, he's with the Lord now, but he once wrote this. He said, we already belong to the heavenly country, 
We are on its frontier whenever we lift up our souls to God in prayer, whenever we feed upon our Lord in holy communion, whenever we we reflect his love in our actions. It is as those who belong already to the heavenly country that we are alert to our present duties, sensitive to the world's troubles, yet serene in the way we meet them. You say you can be sensitive to all the troubles of this world and the troubles of your own life and yet have an inner peace, a serenity, because you know that who's king? who's on the throne, ultimately, of, of, of all of the universe, and that you're seated with him. Nothing should be able to destroy us if we believe that. Paul says in Second Timothy chapter 2, if we endure, that is, as if we persevere in our faith faithfully to the end, he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. That seems almost like, doesn't it almost seem blasphemous to you? Reign with God, reign with Jesus over his kingdom and over his new creation? No way, no way, no way. I don't, that's no, 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 no. Yes. Guess what? It's who God says you are and it's what God says you're going to do if you want to be with him for all eternity. So we're, if we accept that fact now in the here and now, oh, how it would affect how we operate in ministry with boldness and authority in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, you used to sing this song, my old church. In the name of Jesus, demons will have to flee because there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Ever heard that one? <clears throat> Next Sunday, we need to get that on there. Number two, what does it mean for us? Every power of evil, every power of hell has been ultimately defeated. You see, on one hand, we don't take the power of evil seriously enough. We psychologize it. We scientificize it. And we don't take it seriously. Now, I don't want to incite a spirit of paranoia because, guys, the Bible says God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. But whether you like it or not, demons are real. Some of you saw video footage this morning in our class on spiritual warfare um, that probably made you really second-guess your worldview if you didn't believe in demons. I have watched personally hours of footage of people being delivered from evil spirits, some of them home footage from people that I know casting out spirits from people who have been oppressed by them. I have seen it with my own eyes. The um, In Italy, reports, uh, Italy right now currently, and this has increased significantly in recent years, Italy reports more than half a million requests from people a year to be exercised of afflicting spirits. And so the Roman church has opened up like classes on deliverance and exorcism to to people around the world uh, because they see that there's a need for it. And you know, the problem is, is that there's not enough priests and pastors who will step into their role of having Christ's authority to meet with someone who's tormented and afflicted. And rather than send them to the psychiatrist, say, I think we need to pray for deliverance. It's not always, that's not always the case. Sometimes there's a need for counseling and psychology and all that. I believe in all that. There's healing in that. But sometimes we just fail to address what's at the root of the problem, which is spiritual affliction. You see, why is, why is there such a prevalence of that in our world? Now, you go to third world countries and it's much more open. But here, you see, we've sort of, you know, it, we're, we're all about science here and we're in the modern world. We don't believe in that stuff. But I'll tell you the reason there's an increase right now in the world, and I believe we'll start to see it more explicitly, because of the de- decline of the church. There's a decline of Christianity. And largely, that's a lot, largely the church's fault, right? That's largely church's fault because we're not living out what Christianity looks like in the Bible. We're just living out churchianity, right? And nobody, like young people just don't want that. It's, it's no, there's no power in it. And so what do they do? They go to where they can find spiritual power. 
you know, the people say, oh, all young people are atheists. They don't even believe in God. No, 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 no. Very small percent. It's like, like there's like 1.6% of America's population is atheist, like completely atheist or something. It's very small. People are spiritual, but not religious, right? They're the nuns, we call them, because they affiliate with none. So they want power. So what do they do? They go to psychics and mediums and new age people and yogis and gurus to connect to the spiritual transcendent power. And in so doing, they open up pathways to unclean spirits. Now, I, 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 just as a pastoral exhortation to you, if you have a practice of like reading your horoscope and things like that, the Bible calls that divination and it is called an abomination in God's eyes. You're seeking to tap into spiritual knowledge apart from Jesus Christ. It's absolutely forbidden. I'm telling you, friends, there, there are organizations and there are people, and I'm not trying to make you paranoid because you have power in Jesus' name to get free of things if you need to, but there are organizations behind which, and there are institutions and there are peoples behind which unclean spirits are operating and trying to gain more power over our lives to afflict us. Why? Because they hate us. We're the sons and daughters of God. They want to destroy us. And so we have to take these things seriously. Now, uh, just as a side note, and let, let me just be clear. If you have ever even had the slightest inclination that there might be some kind of oppressive spirit in your life, you feel mentally tormented or you feel like there's just a place in your house where there's just something weird about it, please tell me. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be embarrassed of. We want to get people free if they need freedom from evil. Now, here on the other hand, the good news is that evil has ultimately been defeated by the king. First John chapter three tells us the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is a little bit of review for the class from the class this morning. But in Mark chapter one, Jesus, at the very beginning of his public ministry, he goes into the synagogue, he begins to preach. And because he's so powerful and full of spiritual authority, a demon starts to manifest in a guy. And he says, who, what do you want from us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? (laughs) Do you know what the answer is? Yes. And he casts him out. Right? He doesn't go through this long five-page rite of exorcism that he had to memorize or get the bishop's permission. He says, I cast you out. He says, go, be gone from him. And it leaves. You see, that's the authority that a Christian walks in. Paul tells us in Colossians on, uh, that on the cross, what happened in the spiritual realm was that Jesus, he says, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. That's why they can't stand the name of Jesus, the blood of the cross, and the power that there is in it, because that was their defeat, right? You see, we walk in his authority. He said to his disciples, I have given you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, and the power of the evil one cannot harm you. And we need to walk in that, friends. I'm telling you, we need to walk in that. We need to pray for our families in the morning. We need to gird ourselves up because we do live in the domain of darkness even though we have been transferred into the kingdom of light. And there are people who need us to walk in that authority for their own sake. Finally, number three, what does it mean for us? All of our lives must be fully surrendered to him. He can't only be king of part of our lives. That's part of what it means to be a Christian and be his disciple is to learn how to lay every part of life down at his feet and say, Jesus, you must be king of this. You must be king of this. You see, Some of us want to surrender like Sunday and Wednesday to him, but Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I kind of need to keep those for myself, Jesus. I'll get back with you on Sunday. I'll see you then. You can be king then, right? That's just, that's not, that's just how it works. 
He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. Every day of the week. There's no such thing as a weekend Christian. That's called being a re- religious. That's not a, that's not a thing. So, so here's the thing. You don't want that. You don't want to be a religious person who, 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 who that's your religion is Sunday morning in the pew. You don't want that because your life will, will, will lack. It's not what you were created for. You were created for relationship every day with the Lord Jesus Christ to walk with him in intimate fellowship. And you'll, you'll just be dry. If Sunday is like Sunday and, you know, Wednesday night or whatever is just, that's when you're a Christian. Oh man, friends, come and drink from the well of, of living water. Jesus said this, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. There's that spiritual longing in all of us that, that only he fulfills. Don't you want to feast on Jesus every day? Don't you want that every day? That the things in your, your hungers of your soul, to have them fulfilled every day? Jesus says that's, our, that's what he's given to us in himself. He says, I came so they might have life and have it abundantly. But sometimes we just want less than that. And so we settle for less than that. You see, friends, he has so much more to give us. Do you know God always has so much more to give you? None of us are where we could be in our walk with the Lord, myself included. He always have more to give us. And, and following him is always a moving forward and a moving deeper into his presence as people who, 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 who take advantage of everything he gives us to have relationship with him, to, to learn to be in his presence. Now, it, it, prayer is a battle, right? You ever notice that the, um, when you go to watch like a two, hour, two hours of television, you never, you're fine. You don't, you don't feel tired or anything. But when you go to pray in the evening, you just all of a sudden you feel really tired and anything. You know, we're, it's a spiritual warfare. And, and the more that we press and the deeper that we press into his presence and learn how to do it on a consistent basis, the more we'll actually enjoy him. We really will. You want to come back for more because you see how much, that he, much joy that he gives when we're in his, in his presence. Friends, we, we have a good king. He doesn't lie and cheat and steal and kill his way to the top. He lays down his life in love for his enemies. That is good news. Just imagine a person who's totally committed to you with no thought for themselves. They're committed to defeating your enemies, protecting you, making sure that you are whole as you were intended to be. That's Jesus. And that's what he meant to accomplish on his cross. Can we as a church, can we as a church be committed to laying down our lives for him and for one another? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge you as king in this room today. And as we come into this time of worship, God, we ask that uh, you would teach us to worship you as, as, as you desire to be worshiped, Lord not because you have some shortness or weakness in yourself and you you need an ego boost, but because it is what we were created to do and you're glorified and we find life and joy when we get to sing your praises. So Lord, we ask also that um, for all of us who are struggling with any area of life, Lord, and I know that you bring things to mind even right now, those areas of life, Lord, that you would just bring them to mind right now or to all of us that are not surrendered to you and to your kingship. And Lord, we ask that by the strength and work of your Holy Spirit in us, that in the days to come, those things will become surrendered to you so that we can find the life that is truly abundant. Lord, we bless you. We praise you. Now we come into worship together. 
to revere your holy name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.